Race matters. 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 to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long, long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, for sharing stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country, and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. What is the first thing you think of when you hear the term wellness or wellness industry? I think of acai bowls. Is that right? Is that how you say it? Acai, yeah, acai bowls. It's very divided on how to say it, but yeah. yeah. Um, beauty. Holistic holistic therapy. therapy. I think of a lot of appropriation. Oh, fully. It's a lot of passing off traditional, uh, like medicinal or, you know, well-being practices as, let's be real, like a white fad. Yeah, as a eastern suburbs Bondi mum's trend. Can I say that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just said it. Yeah, I Uh, said what I said. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a commodification of health, you know. It's making it appear like a product that you need to buy into. And quite exclusive too. Only certain people of a certain demographic can now really buy into it. It's not really accessible for all. And look, we talk a lot about self-care on Race Matters and we know how important it is to prioritise our health, especially as First Nations people and people of colour. But the wellness industry conjures this idea of essential oils, pyramid schemes, green smoothies gentrified yoga studios i mean it just drips with whiteness the intersection of health capitalism and appropriation so how do we decolonize wellness it's a huge question and that's what we're talking about today our executive producer tanya ali caught up with pranita thevaraja an artist working at the intersection of art and education pranita is interested in connecting the personal the institutional and the spiritual uh, to imagine new ways of being and to navigate healing in all its forms. And uh, along with two other artists, uh, she launched a platform that looks at exactly that. It's called Studio Ananda. Yeah, and Pranita also grew up in Western Sydney, but over the last three years, she's been living in New York and only just touched down in Sydney a few weeks ago. So the chat you'll hear also covers the idea of home, a topic we often come back to, as well as her glass-making art practice. That's coming up soon. Uh, Yeah, but first... This idea of wellness, look, I feel like at some level, everyone's kind of guilty of buying into it Mm. um, because we can't escape it. You know, we're fed into it. I mean, Sarah, you and I, like, we join a gym. (laughs) Like, we pay 
money to be fit. Is that the same thing? No. Yeah. No, I really don't think it is because also we're not appropriating from other cultures and commodifying it in order to turn a profit. Two very different things. That's true. Um, but then the people that do buy into the wellness industry is that just a practice of self-care for them? I mean, I feel like it needs to be decolonized first before we can really think about how the wellness industry is actually engaging in authentic self-care for the people that are receiving it. Mm, that's such an interesting um, way to look at it, like the authenticity of self-care, especially when, you know, I mean, look at Bikram yoga, you know. <laughs> Most yoga studios are pretty guilty of that. You see in yeah. the language that they use, in the names that they use, um, and uh, I feel like it's such a wormhole to get into this uh, conversation about yoga too, because obviously its roots are quite, mm-hmm. you know, murky as yeah. to the authenticity of how yoga even began. There's a whole documentary about it. I know. Yeah. Have you seen I, it? I, the Bikram yoga one. Yeah, yeah. Um, bits and pieces of it, yeah, but pretty yeah. much how he was um, sexually abusing a lot of his oh. um, students. Yeah. I mean, cult leader 101. Oh my god. <laughs> But look at it now, like... It's huge. It's a global phenomenon. It's an industry now. It's its own industry. Oh, man. I was having this chat um, recently about how when white people discover a bit of culture, all of a sudden they feel the need to grow a massive beard. Like what? Like a lot of like these like white fellas, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. they gain a little bit of culture, oh. they drip a little, dab a little bit of it, and then all of a sudden they've got these massive beards to make them seemingly like racially ambiguous. Oh right, yeah. Oh, I never, yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Yeah, the Byron, I've cracked it. The Byron effect. <laughs> the Byron effect. That's something we need to unpack. Oh, that's the next episode. <laughs> it's definitely the next episode. You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. And earlier this week, our AP legend, Tanya Ali, caught up with artist Pranita Thevaraja, who's just landed back in Western Sydney, where she grew up after spending three years studying and making it in Brooklyn, New York. Pranita's co-launched a platform now with a couple of fellow NY-based artists that focus on healing, which we'll get a bit later on in in the show and a content warning this chat does contain mentions of abuse pranita is an artist of many hats and one of those hats is kapu you might have seen her creations on instagram they're brightly colored tubular blown glass that are unlike anything we've really seen before if this isn't ringing a bell to you here's pranita now to tell us more neon sign and it wasn't turned on um and you could just see i guess the skeleton of it it would be a bunch of glass tubes that are bent so what i do with kapu is instead of pumping it with neon i just bend the tubes how i want them to be and that's it i leave them hollow um the tubes range in thickness and color and size and yeah, I've just been, I started with neon, so I started um, taking neon classes, and I'm just way too impatient and clumsy to go through the entire process of creating a piece of neon, and yeah, I just started playing around with a lot of the scraps that were going to be recycled, and started taking photos of some of the stuff I was making, like thought it was fun to see if I could wear it and 
posted photos on my Instagram and my friends were like, hey, can I have one of those? And yeah, it just kind of went from there where I started experimenting with um, using them as vessels and using them as paperweights and um, now hoping to see what else I can do with it. I've always been very interested in neon and I guess the process behind what it takes to make a piece of work that lights up and has such tangible electricity running through it um, that I think, I don't know, I guess I was just called to it because I, I was, I took this neon class when I was in my second year of uni and I had gone through like a year and a half of doing all this theory work and I'm a very, I need to, I have a lot of frustration when I'm not making things with my hands. So I thought a neon class could be fun. Um, but I think the gag of it all, and I always say this, is that I'm a very clumsy person and I have was made fun of so long when I was growing up because I'd break things and now I run this this glass studio and I think there's something very beautiful about the way that you can, I guess, manipulate the elements and having that control for me is very meditative, especially as someone who has anxiety and depression, just like going into the studio and being able to turn this very rigid shape into something fluid is um it's very deeply therapeutic for me honestly seeing the uh instagram posts that you sometimes put up of the process of making it is deeply therapeutic to me like it's (laughs) so it's such an incredible art form yeah i'm glad i mean i when i started i was super super um manic because I had never worked with open fire like this before and so I was a little bit hesitant to really get into it but you really learn to work with the fire and like work with gravity and let it kind of guide you and I think that that is what is so entrancing about the whole thing to me that I never really know what I'm going to come out with and um, yeah I'm addicted I'm hooked. You have a GoFundMe currently running to raise fundraise for Studio Kapu. What's your vision for the studio? Honestly, I feel so blessed and I have so much gratitude for even my parents offering their garage space for me because bending and blowing in New York was so expensive. It's so expensive to rent out a studio over there and... I was carrying glass back and forth between my studio and home because um, storing inventory, there's just no room for it. So, yeah, I when I was moving back to Sydney, when I decided to move back to Sydney, I knew that it was time for me to expand because I've been so overwhelmed with Kapu where I just don't have space um, and I need to physically make room. I... I've always been, I mean, when I left Sydney, I was, I felt quite 
frustrated and quite unseen by the lack of creative spaces that are in the western suburbs and I know that since I've gone there are some amazing spaces that have been fostered and nurtured parry and like the things that are happening at the Peacock Gallery so many wonderful spaces that are coming up and I see this space as potentially something that can be not just a creative studio for Kapu but can be a place where people can come together and can come to learn together and I don't know what that looks like um I just have hopes for it to be a bit more than just a place where I can practice. Um, the garage is not that big, but who knows what it will look like in five to ten years. Um, I just know that it's important for me to build tangible spaces that work across the community and don't just and don't just center my own practice, but can be spaces for other people to come in and learn and work on their own craft as well totally um you've been based in new york yeah for the last three years how does it feel to be back here in sydney it's been intense it's been um i spent the first two weeks in in quarantine and i think that that was a good buffer for me to just kind of get emotionally prepared um but the past week or so has been, I think I'm just coming to terms with a lot of different things. You know, I've returned to my childhood home and I'm coming back into all these spaces where when I left, it was very much like I was fleeing and like I was escaping and I'm coming back more resolved and I think a completely different person. So it's nice. And it's exciting to see that there are so many different ways that this city has changed. Um, being around family, of course, is, can always be really intense. So I think that's what I am currently navigating the most, like figuring out how to hold the truth that I have discovered about myself while also being patient um, with some of the things that are so deeply entrenched in my home. Um, but overall, it's been it's been lovely. It's been so great to be out of a big city and a big city like New York and just have space to hear myself think um, and breathe fresh air and see an unobstructed skyline and just be closer to nature. All those things are things that I'm really grateful for. Yeah, I feel like um, place kind of comes up a lot in you know some of the conversations we've had and also in some of the conversations you've had with others when talking about your work um how how do you think that being in New York shaped both you and also the beginnings of Kapu Hmm. yeah I think New York is such I mean it's a melting pot and it really is just a place where a lot of different people come to, I guess, find themselves and, you know, start their careers and establish something for themselves. Um, and because it is, because America is, it's so, 
it, it is what it is because it's so extremely what it is. The ways that artists and creative communities function, they're so alternate. They're forced to be so alternate because they're forced to imagine a completely different way of being, which is subversive to the structure that they occupy, right? So I think that it just allowed, it allowed me to to do something without necessarily knowing what exactly it was going to turn into, if that makes sense. Um, it allowed for this curiosity and this playfulness, which I don't think I really was really fostered in me when I was here because because of because of a variety of things but there's so much risk taking that happens in a city like New York because of the need to be risky because of the need to exit out of the structure that exists if that makes sense um so yeah I think that combined with being in being situated in Brooklyn in the middle of a queer um, black indigenous people of color community where um, you're encouraged to uplift the people around you and the craft of the people around you and you're encouraged to hone your own skill but also um, honor that in others I think the combination of all those things really allowed for this foundation to be built for Kapu. This is quite a loaded question and it totally I mean I know for me it changes all the time Um, Mm -hmm. but what does like in this moment what does home mean to you? I've been thinking about this a lot um, because when I got back to Sydney, people were like, welcome home. And I was thinking, well, I don't know if Sydney's ever really been home and I've never really felt like Sydney has been home. Um, But then when I was in New York, I obviously didn't feel completely like I belong there because I'm not American. And I think what I'm learning is that home really is the your own ability to hold yourself and your own ability to be with yourself. And yeah, maybe that's like our ancestral nomadic lineage coming through, but being, I, I do feel quite nomadic in my attachment to home. I do feel quite comfortable being in isolated spaces and still feeling grounded and um, feeling like I have everything that I need right within me. And that, that only really developed in the past year or so as I started to understand myself a little bit more. Um, But I think that that's what home means to me right now. 
Yeah, really beautiful reflection from Pranita Thevaraja. You can check out Kapu on Instagram at kapu.glass. And the link to Studio Kapu fundraiser is in the bio if you have the means and want to support what it sounds like. Uh, will be another incredible Western Sydney art space. We'll pop a link up to it on our website too. Just head to fbiradio.com forward slash race matters. That is what you're listening to right now. My name is Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. We're in the middle of a chat with artist Pranita Thevaraja. Um, another warning, this next part of the conversation mentions sexual abuse. Uh, and on top of that, uh, Pranita will be unpacking uh, the birth and the function of Studio Ananda and dives into, uh, with our EP, Tanya Ali, her conceptions of self-care as well. So I started working with Driha Rasheen last September, started as her assistant, and then we've always been quite close friends and we've always had these conversations where we both have had very similar upbringings. She grew up in Sydney she grew up a child of sexual abuse and in a quite uh, conservative religious family and then escaped to New York and started to do her thing. Um, and, yeah, we always have questions. We always have these conversations where we're deeply interrogating a lot of the things that we see that we didn't really understand before, but now makes sense according to our, I guess, uh, zoomed out perspective of the world, which we're very, we recognize is a huge privilege to be able to live, I guess, as these third culture children almost, um, but also has come about because we have struggled so extremely at the hands of abuse. Um, but we were just thinking about how about healing in general and you know all the ways that we've free and i have discovered healing have been so antithetical and so against how they've been traditionally sold to us traditionally taught to us by the institutions that we are in so in in i want to say February, we started talking about Studio Ananda and thinking about how we could have these conversations on a larger platform where we really wanted to challenge not only the wellness industry, but also but every other colonized institution um, that has either commodified healing or um, appropriated from healing and then the pandemic happened and we just witnessed this um, international collapse of structures and we knew that we knew because we were in conversation with so many people that people were really struggling to be with themselves as they were forced to be isolated and that so many things were coming up for a lot of people, you know, um, so many anxieties and insecurities, which we believe to be ultimately a spiritual and, you know, a mental health and emotional issue, which 
is all manipulated by the systems that we occupy. So we knew that we had to have this conversation, but in a way that was both accessible and digestible. So we we brought on our amazing designer, Sonia Prabhu, who really helped us think about how we could translate a lot of these things online and yeah we've been we prioritize working with black indigenous people of color healers and practitioners who provide alternate modes to healing and we're we're all learning we're all equally on this healing journey so it's really just about how we can transfer that knowledge and how we can educate each other and help each other um, as we all, you know, face our collective and individual need to heal and need to move forward. There are some focus questions that you've raised as part of Studio Ananda, um, mm-hmm. and one that's really stuck with me is what does a pro-liberation anti-colonial healing practice look like? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not to throw your own question back at you, but <laughs> I'm really interested in what your thoughts are on that and whether they've changed since launching the website. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, I don't even know if that question will ever really be answered and I think that what we aim to do with that with our space is just experiment and really like really throw ourselves into the deep end and see if any of these things are really working and then if they're not okay that's fine now how can we reimagine this and how can we reshape this and I think in terms of pro-liberation anti-colonial we are really thinking about a wellness healing spaces that are against what is being currently sold to us by the wellness industry um, and a healing space that is decolonial in essence. Um, and in order to do that, there it is a lot of uncovering very difficult things. And even as, you know, we interviewed a Desi American yogi a couple months ago who spoke to her experience as a Desi practitioner in India who felt sidelined and who felt like she was an alien in her own home as a yoga instructor um, and spoke to a lot of the commodification of South Asian healing practices in the West. So that was an interview we did. And then when we published that interview, a lot of our community responded and said, okay, this is all fine, but what about casteism that exists within the practice of yoga and within um, South Asian healing modalities? And that is not something that Freeha and I, as as people who grew up away from caste, ever really thought about. Um, But as it was raised in the community, obviously it's necessary as South Asians to start thinking about that. So the pro-liberation anti-colonial space is one that is fluid and one that is willing to listen and willing to willing to pivot and willing to shapeshift and um, not not holding any 
presuppose predetermined ways of doing one thing, but really working with this organic um, ability to to change and to learn and not really imposing or dictating one way of doing something because healing is non-linear it's very personal and it changes for each of us individually so just like feeding that and and being open to that yeah 100 percent. i guess this kind of leads um really naturally to self-care which is something that we talk a lot about on race matters we have especially this year um and it's obviously intrinsically linked uh, to wellness and healing and to me also to community. Mm. Where does self-care kind of fit in for you? So the ways that I am understanding self-care since, I guess, pandemic are the ways in which we're able to, well, that I'm able to heal my own woundings in order to be a better resource, not just for myself, but also for the community. So self-care as something that is not bought, not something that is sold, but is tailored to the nuances of my own experience. And, you know, some days that might look like rest, because I've had an intense day of seeing too much family and some days that might look like saying no to um, a call and asking to reschedule a call. And it really is about just listening and locating my feelings and being honest to them and um, prioritizing them in a way that's transparent and in a way that is intentional in that it ultimately is looking out for sustainability so I don't want to be burnt out because in order to do this work holistically and to do this work long term we need to be refreshed we need to be re-energized so yeah I guess lately self-care looks like sleeping in when I want to. It looks like treating myself to an unhealthy snack when I feel like it. It looks like being gentle. Um, And I think that gentleness is super important right now because we all carry so much and it's necessary to to go slow and really be able to quiet any self-deprecating thoughts in order to care for the the children that live within us who you know are yearning for so much and once we're able to do that once we're able to really listen and locate ourselves that's when we will see the, the, that's when the fruition of this work will show itself externally, I think. 
This year has obviously been a lot, to say the least, um, but I've found myself really trying to find silver linings amidst the chaos, um, and I was wondering if any spring to mind for you. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that the fact that we are having these conversations um, at larger scales, more widespread, that people are interested in not just healing in a way that is performative, in a way that is for their grid, but in a way that's like deeply, deeply internal, um, because they're, people are starting to wake up to understand that we can't live as individualists, we can't live as ego-driven people um, because that is not sustainable and that doesn't work if we want to help the earth and help each other. Um, the fact that I'm able to engage in a lot more of those conversations now, you know, whether it's with my dad or with you or with someone who comes onto the Studio Ananda platform and wants to chat, that has been super encouraging because it does give me hope for this movement that we're all trying to create. And it really does make me believe that we all are building towards an alternate, but together future. Pranita, we ask uh, every guest who comes on to Race Matters this question. It's our final question. When did you realize there was power in your race? Hmm. I think, I don't know if there was ever one specific time that I realized that there's power in in what I do and where I come from, but the fact that I'm still here and I'm still able to do this work, like, you know, coming back to the childhood home that I was abused in gave me power, gave me a lot of power being able to stand true to who I was and who I am and, you know, having having my same community of people that I left and came back to still holding me so strong gave me a lot of power and gives me a lot of power. And I think that it's something that I am realizing more and more every day um, I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, I don't think that there has ever been one time. I think there's been a culmination of experiences and I, I think that, hmm, I think the fact that my parents came to Australia as refugees fled a war, a civil war where, you know, they were hunted um, and gave birth to three children, two of which were severely sexually abused. And yet I've still been able to find passion in creativity and find joy in life. I think that gives me power every day and 
yeah, well, I'm I'm always going to hold on to that, and it's what gets keeps me going.、Um, yeah. Listen, as chosen by your guest this week, artist Pranita Thevaraja. A massive thank you to Pranita for joining us for such a beautiful chat. If you want、uh, to find more of Pranita's work,、uh, we got you. You can head to fbiradio.com/forward/slash/racematters, and all the links、uh, will be there,、uh, including to her GoFundMe for Studio Kapu. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Darren Lasagas, and I'm Sada Khan. And don't forget that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts or our website. Again, that's fbiradio.com/forward/slash/racematters. Catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.